Deuteronomy 11. I'm just trying to get y'all a little wake up. Sorry, a little woke up. Deuteronomy 11. He's going to finish that. Thanks. You can just sit right there. Thank you. Uh, And then we're going to be in verse 10. Deuteronomy 11, verse 10, I think. We'll bounce around. Let me just read some stuff, and then we'll we'll go straight into that. This is going to be awesome today. Uh, I, I told Ellington this morning, I don't normally do, uh, in my, my eye, I mean the Lord, uh, usually normally do specific messages over specific topics, um, but we are going to do that today. We're going to talk about rest, and um, not necessarily in the in the way that we see rest, but in, a, in the way that the Bible uh, gives us as it relates to rest. So let me read this real quick. Uh, rest can only be achieved through knowing who you are. So last week, if you weren't here, all we did was talk about who you are. Anybody remember this? <laughs> okay, thanks. Rest, rest, biblically, can only be achieved through knowing who you are. And knowing who you are can only fully come through rest. So this is the dance we as believers must always find ourselves in. The more we live in an ontology of rest, ontology being just the study of nature, study of human nature, okay? So the more we live in an ontology of rest, the more convinced we become of who we are. And the more convinced we become of who we are, the more we'll rest. And I put this little note in the little margin on my paper. Think about this. If the enemy wants your identity, which he does, ultimately, this is where he went after with Adam and Eve. If the enemy ultimately wants your identity, what do you think he'll actually start going after? Your rest. He's not, so, so the enemy's not going to go after who you are first. He's going to get you busy, and then as you're busy, he's going to start whispering who you're not. Business, or busyness, <laughs> busyness is so deadly because it gives the illusion of accomplishment. Busyness, now I'm, again, I'm, I'm not talking about in American, you know, Western culture. I'm talking about in the Bible view of rest. We're going to go through this. Rest. Busyness, which is the opposite of rest, is deadly because it gives you the illusion you're actually accomplishing something. When in the reality of who you are, who you really are, you're actually losing something. This is why it's deadly. Because, and this is, this is where, uh, especially in ministry, it can get confusing. And we see this all the time because I can get real busy real fast in the name of ministry. Right? Like I say all the time, I could, we, if, because of just where I came from and what I know, if we wanted to pack this place out 10 times on a Sunday, you give us a million dollars, we'll do it by next week. Easy. But my family will hate me, amen, because I'll never be at home, right? And this, we'll have this place looking like a Kanye West concert real quick, right? And I've never been to a Kanye West concert, so I don't even know what that means. But I just saw your t-shirt, so that was the first, time, the first thing that came to my mind. <laughs> So, so, so busyness is deadly because it gives the illusion of accomplishment. Now, here's the flip side of that. Our culture has built, built every single thing you could ever possibly accomplish on busyness. So it adds a whole nother layer 
of seek first the kingdom of God when we live in a culture that says the harder you work, the more you'll have. And Jesus is saying the more you rest, the more you'll have. It may not look like money, but it'll look like joy, peace, right? Hope, dream. So rest is trust. Rest is trust. In order to rest, you must relinquish control. The primary reason we don't rest in our modernized, ultra-advanced, you know, culture is we, we say that the way to achieve greatness is work. Okay? So, so the primary reason we don't rest is because in a natural viewpoint, we view work as the only way to achieve greatness. Here, we must also say then and consider that the only pathway to greatness is control. Okay? I'm, I'm going to break this stuff down, but this is just how my brain works. So we view work as the only way to achieve greatness. And if that's what we view as greatness, then we also must say the only way to achieve greatness is to have control. For you can only work in what you have control of. Right? So the only reason I can make... If I said tomorrow I want our church to do X, Y, and Z, guess what we're doing? X, Y, and Z. Why? Because I'm the pastor. Right? However, if I'm just showing up for the first time and I say, you know what? You know what we need to do next week? X, Y, and Z. There's a good chance we're probably not going to do that. You know what I'm saying? Why? Because one person is, I guess you would say in a natural sense, in control, has the authority to be in control, and another person is not, right? So the only way that you can work is to have control of something. So the reason we burn up our time is because that's one of the few things we have control over or we think we have control over. Right? So you can only do with what you have control of. The kingdom of Yahweh, however, is built on rest. It's built on be still and know I am God, or seek first the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added to you. So how do we fit Yahweh's call to live in rest with the world's call to live in control? This is the dilemma many have tried to live in the tension of. We have attempted to create rest as an act of works. Right? So we, we try to live in the tension of, and I don't know if this is necessarily wrong, we just need to give one the authority. But we've tried to live in the, atten- in the tension of, this is what the world requires of me, this is what the kingdom requires of me, and I'm going to try to do both. That's the tension we lived in. And what happens when you live in that tension is you start creating rest. Let me say it like this. You start controlling rest, right? So we'll start having conversations on how do you rest rather than just simply resting. I'm, I'm trying to make this make sense. Are y'all with me? Let me this is, this is going to make a lot more sense when I explain this, and I didn't intend to go into, into this. Here's where a lot of, and I've talked to Jordan about this, Ellington about this, and y'all are probably sick of hearing me say this because this, just, just, this is how I think. The, the Israelites were Eastern culture and philosophical, if you will, people. We live in the West, okay? 
The West was rooted in Greek and Roman thinking and culture and philosophy. That's what the West was rooted in, okay? So here's the difference. Here's the difference. And this is, I'm about to explain a lot of the Old Testament and why we don't understand a lot of the Old Testament. This is, I'm about to explain it to you. You ready? So the Eastern way of thinking was uh, very poetic. It was very, if you read through the, New, the Old Testament, the reason there is so much to discover is because the way that Moses or David or Elijah or Isaiah would have spoke or wrote or taught would be in an Eastern Hebraic mindset, which is they speak things and hide things all throughout what they say for the listener to discover. So when we read about, for example, me and Matt have been talking about this, the account of creation in Genesis 1 you could take that from a Western perspective and make it a science experience experiment with an end goal, or you could take it for what it is, which is actually a, a Hebrew poem that's actually leading us all the way through the main point, which is the Sabbath or rest, right? See, when, even when I say that, a lot of people are like, hold up, because we think in Western terms. The West, the culture we live in, has to know the reason why for every single thing. So it's not, let me give you an example. It's not enough to just know God exists. We've got to know God exists, why he exists, what about this, 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 what about this. And if at any point any of those break down or we don't have an answer for it, immediately it's like, fine, then I won't believe in God. That's the West. Enter Plato, enter Aristotle, Enter Socrates, all the Greek philosophers that says, all right, the Old Testament Hebrew doesn't have an answer for heaven, so let us try to figure out what heaven is. And so you have Plato, doesn't believe in God. You have Plato giving you this idea of babies floating around on clouds with harps and all that stuff. And to this day, you can drive through Columbia and the stained glass windows on almost every church is not an Old Testament view of God or God's space or new creation, Lord help us, or resurrection. Nobody believes in resurrection, even though it's right in your scripture. Right? Nobody believes in that. Why? Because Plato came in and when our Western thinking said, I've got to know why for every single detail of everything, Plato, a Greek philosopher, said, I've got your answer. And we said, sweet, as long as I got the answer, I can buy into that. The Eastern mindset, which is what your scripture was written in, the, the Old Testament specifically, the Eastern mindset was focused on good. It wasn't focused on perfection. They don't even have an idea for perfection. So we read Genesis 1. I'm trying to help us out, okay? So just help me. We get in Genesis 1, and we want to know, for example, is that day a 24-hour day? Is it 1,000 years? Is it 10 billion years? What does that day mean? So while we're sitting around trying to ask questions, your Scripture never intended on even answering. The Eastern world is saying, I don't care if it meant one day or a billion days. God created Right? So you have people in Iraq that are exploding with revival and the gospel spreading. China just became, I believe, just became the largest Christian population in a country on planet Earth. And they are persecuted more than just about any other country on planet Earth for being a Christian. So why is that? Because they have the mindset. I don't need to ask the questions that Scripture wasn't even trying to get to, right? 
All I've got to know is Jesus Christ was the Son of God. He died on a cross. Three days later, he rose again, which means I'm going to rise again too. Chop my head off. That's okay, because guess what? When he comes back, I'm going to rise again just as the Scripture says. So, so as, as Moses is writing some of this stuff and he's teaching some of this stuff, when he goes into rest, it was never intended to be a mathematic equation that we have to figure out so that we got the answer to it. Not, that wasn't it. And yet that's how we think about rest. We'll have conferences about how to rest. Right? We'll have blog posts on how to re- Just rest. Do you know what I'm saying? But, but this is what we do. It's because we have to have control of everything. So as long as we have control and it sounds like Scripture, then we're good with it. And Yahweh's trying to get us to the place where he's saying, there's a reason I don't answer everything in Scripture. It's not because I didn't want you to know. It's because you don't need to worry about it. What is faith? The evidence of things hoped for and the assurance of things what? Not seen. See, people don't like that. That's okay. Control. All right, so the Sabbath mindset is a mindset of rest based on the fact that Yahweh is in control and you as a believer can rest in the fact that you are the objects of his love. Okay? We have peace because he is in control. Do you understand this? Are y'all with me? Okay, half, two people. This is why, this is why rest and identity cannot be separated. You can't have one reality without the other. They are synonymous. Okay? So last week we discussed who we are as a general overview, but today I want to get into some of the meat of the implications of who we are. So two things that mark us as a son or daughter of God. Two things. We're going to read through some of this stuff. Two things that mark us as a son or daughter of God. Number one, total dependence on God. Veda is completely dependent on Jordan and I. If we don't feed her, guess what? She goes hungry. Actually, now she probably knows how to go to the pantry and do all that stuff. But y'all see what I'm saying? She doesn't have an income. We provide her with a place to live. We provide her with transportation. We provide her for for food. She's total dependent. Why? Because she is our daughter. So to be a son or daughter of God is to not be in control. It's to be totally dependent on Yahweh. This is where Jesus' teaching comes in. Look at the flowers of the field. They're clothed better than Solomon. They're clothed better than anybody else. And guess who clothes them? Not them, me. Look at the birds of the air. They never miss a meal. Why? Because I feed them. Now, if you are of so much greater value, how much more do you think your heavenly Father is going to take care of you? So don't worry about what you eat. Don't worry about what you drink. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And guess what? He'll provide you with what you need. Okay, so it's total dependence on God. And number two, two things that mark us as sons and daughters of God. Total dependence and unwavering rest. Rest, biblically, isn't exclusively about a lack of work. Though, as in the Sabbath day, it may rhythmically include laying down works. Rest is more about living in a mindset that Yahweh is in control, therefore there's nothing to fear and nothing to be anxious over. 
That's what it means to be in rest. What happens when we start viewing the commands of the covenant of the Lord, or let's say the Ten Commandments even? What happens when we start viewing these through the lens of rest? I've been been doing a lot of studying in the Old Testament lately. And the more I read this, the more I think, the more I think, and Yahweh begins to give me revelation, but this is just my brain just goes a million miles a minute. The more I see that Scripture, specifically in the Old Testament, um, was never meant to be works-based. So we, we describe it on this side of the covenant as that was of works, this is not of works, and we completely don't, I don't think we understand any of this stuff. If you read through some of these commandments, in fact, let's just, let's just, just for a minute, just for a minute. I mean, just, just listen to some of this stuff. Think about this through rest. Through rest, okay? Knowing who they are, okay? You must not have any other God but me. Number one. So in order for me to go to another God and break this commandment, I've got to start working. But in order for me to simply live in this commandment, what do I do? Just have to live in the fact that I'm exclusively his, he's exclusively mine. There's no works in that. Right? Number two, you must not make for yourself any idol of any kind or any image of anything in the heavens. You must not make for yourself an idol. In order for me to worship idols, what do I got to do? Start getting to work. Right? But if I rest... Are you guys seeing this? This, this, take, this starts taking on a whole new meaning for all the whole Old Testament to me. Okay? I mean, don't misuse the name of the Lord your God. Observe the Sabbath day and keep it holy. What is the Sabbath? A day that you lay down works and just rest and have fun. So in order for you to break the Sabbath, what do you got to do? Take up your works. So, so the, man, I could just keep going. Do not murder. Right? What do you got to do in order to murder? Got to pick up a gun and go murder somebody. If you're at home resting, guess what you're not going to do? Murder. (laughs) Must not commit adultery. You see what I'm saying? You must not steal. You must not testify falsely against your neighbor and not covet your neighbor's wife. Every single one of these. Honor your father and mother. All of these were not Yahweh. The entire Old Testament, even the book of Leviticus, It was not Yahweh giving them a list of things to do. It was actually Yahweh giving them a list of things that they are if they'll just live in the fact that they're sons and daughters of Him. That's all it was. Right? So as long as, and that's why you see Jesus saying things like this, you can fulfill every single commandment with this, love your neighbor as yourself. Right? And then later on he says two things, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. How, how is it that you take the entire Old Testament and sum it up in a sentence? Why didn't they just give us the sentence? Right? What is Jesus saying? He's saying if you'll live in love in the New Testament, that's agape in the Hebrew, it's very similar to this. If you'll live in the idea of unconditional, unfailing love, all of these will be fruit from that. So, so we look at the Old Testament and we say, man, all that was just about works. 
It became about works because we made it about works in turning away from the Lord. But it wasn't about works in the beginning. That's why the Hebrews will say today, the Jews, they'll say that Jesus, the the English translation where Jesus says, I have not come to do away with the law, I've come to fulfill it, is wrong. They'll tell you if you study it. The Jews will say what Jesus actually said was, I have not come to throw away the law, I have come to fill the law, not fulfill, to fill it, to bring it to its completion, to bring it to its perfection. Think about this. I never think twice about the command, do not commit adultery, and yet I don't commit adultery. Why? Because I'm saved. Do you see what this does? So when you get saved, I, like if you get saved today, maybe you're not saved, I'm not going to give you a whole list of commands and say, now don't do that and that and that and that and do that and that and that and that, and then you'll be great. No. We, what do we say? We say, live in intimacy with Jesus. You are a son and daughter of God, etc. Because if you're living in Jesus, you'll fulfill the law. Why? Because the law was always intended to be fulfilled in resting in who you are. So Jesus didn't come to take the Old Testament and rip it out of your Bible. Jesus came so that through him, you could fulfill everything written in your Bible. This is blowing me away this week. I don't know about y'all. Maybe none of y'all care. You should, okay? You should. So what happens when we start viewing the commands of the covenant of the Lord through the lens of rest? We've always viewed the Lord's commands as him saying, get to work doing blank so that you can earn blank, right? So we always saw the Old Testament as him saying, get to work doing the law to earn being God's people. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, because you're God's people, this is how you should live. So it's the modern idea of holiness just in an Old Testament context. Because his blood was shed, you should live holy or set apart. It's the same thing. Are y'all with me? Okay, cool. But the Israelites were God's people, not because of what they did, but because of who they were, which is Abraham's seed. The book of Hebrews says, all who believe today have faith are Abraham's seed and heirs to the promise. So you and I are Abraham's seed if you're saved. Right? What's up, guys? So we see this over and over and over in Scripture where God moves for them because of who they are, usually in spite of what they've done. We see this all the time. Every time the Israelites took control of their lives or their country, they went astray. Because they refused to be convinced of who they are, they never let themselves live for, the, for enjoying the one who they were joined to. It, let me ask you this question. Is the pleasure of his company enough? Is the pleasure of knowing him enough? Rest will always be uncomfortable for the one still holding on to slavery. Because in slavery, what you did determined what you had. Sound familiar? But as a king and queen, though, what you have is solely determined by who you are and the family you've been adopted into. How, how, how does Prince, what is it, wasn't it Prince Harry or whatever? Or what's the other one's name? William. How does he ever become king? Does he have works to do? No. You know how he becomes king? He was born into the family. 
Literally, there is nothing he has done to earn that spot. It's literally the blood in his veins. Right? So So how should we see us? When we've been adopted into son and daughtership, there's no works to accomplish son and daughtership. You're a son and daughter because your blood runs with the same blood as his. Okay. The danger is is that we hear that so many times that we start taking it for granted. Because I think that's really what happens. We hear that over and over. Because if you're in this church, I promise you, you'll hear it on a weekly basis. We'll hear it over and over and over. And about 10 years in, we'll be like, yeah, that's great. No. Right? That, what, what does it mean for the Father to look at you and see Jesus? You didn't earn that. So, so when we show up to worship, this is why apathy drives me bonkers. Because we show up to worship. God was not apathetic towards you. He gave everything to you. And we have the audacity to show up in giving or in worship or in our lives and be apathetic toward God. And then still claim that we have the gift of salvation that was given to us not through apathy, but through giving all. For God so loved the... Co- the let, me say it, let me say it in the actual translation. Because our English Bibles butcher this. For God so loved his creation that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. God did not send his son into his creation to condemn his creation, but that through him his creation might be saved. Sozoed. Right? So it was nothing that we did, however, through his undying, unrelenting love towards us, he accomplished what we were unable to accomplish on our own. How, I mean, how dare we show up apathetically towards that? People hate that. I said that you go down the street and everybody on the street of Columbia will tell you they're a Christian. Everybody, all of them. But they don't go to church. You know, you know what I'm saying? I'm I'm about to get myself in a lot of trouble. Okay. Uh, I got some teaching on the church. I don't know if I'll get to it today. The first thing I want to address, the first thing I want to address real quick before we go to Deuteronomy, is what it meant for Israel, now us, to be in covenant with Yahweh. Let me read this out of this Jewish, um, Messianic Jewish uh, little study Bible right here. I thought this was really interesting. Historically, the fundamental function of the covenant was, a, was to establish a community of interest between the king and his people. Okay? Covenant thus implies community. The forming of common customs, common views, and a common life. This meant an intimate sharing of life, nature, and ultimately ultimately, wills, okay? This meant an intimate sharing of life, nature, and custom where the wills of the contracting parties ultimately become identical. This commonness of will implied in the covenant showed that the parties had united for a common aim that they had become part of a close union. At its core, love forms the heart of the covenant relationship. So a covenant was when a king and his people would establish a common view, 
common customs, and a common life that ultimately led to sharing a common will. This is the idea of the Old Testament covenant. So what does it mean that Yahweh wanted to, with us, establish common customs, common views, a common life, and ultimately a common will? That when I make a decision in a moment, I can be so joined to him that it's the same decision he would make if he was in that moment. A common will. Right? Okay. So, the covenant between Yahweh and Israel was based in love, but included the laws as a way to form a common set of customs, views, and a common life. It was to make a way for the intimate sharing of life nature, and customs to the point where the individual wills of both parties became one. So think of a marriage covenant, okay? Traditionally, this is what you agree to if you're joining somebody in marriage, okay? You agree, agree to love from this day forward for better, for worse, richer, poor, sickness, health, to love and cherish as long as you live and pledging to the other your faith or yourself, right? Anybody ever been to a wedding? Okay, man, come on. All right, that, that is a law. Do you understand this? So what you agree to is a law. For better, for worse, richer, poor, sickness, health, all that stuff is a law. Now, do Jordan and I wake up every single day and say, okay, don't forget better, worse, richer, definitely don't forget poor, uh, just kidding. <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> in sickness, health, uh, love. It. Do, do we do we wake up? No, we don't do that, right? We live in covenant. But this set of laws is what guides our covenant into ultimately us becoming one. So when Yahweh gives the Israelites the laws, what He's doing is giving them a path to become what He ultimately wanted was them and Him. As one, which is why when Jesus comes and we live our life in the Messiah and God sums up all things in the Messiah, all in the New Testament, the reason that's so important is because God finally gets what he wants, him and us as one. So what would happen if you started reading the Old Testament? See, a lot of people avoid the Old Testament because they think it's just a set of things to do. Don't get tattoos. Don't do this. Don't let your hair grow out this long. Wear this on this day. You know what I'm saying? So a lot of people just rip it out, throw it away. We don't need it. We're in the new covenant. No, no, no. Hold on. What we see in that is the nature of God being revealed in all its nakedness toward us. That's stuff we need to understand so that in the new covenant, we can understand the magnitude of what it means for us and him to be one. Okay. So, this is what, this idea of a law establishing commonality, and this is all going to make sense in a second, so just hold on. This is what I call defining naturality. This is my phrasing, okay? That is, that in the law, he's defining for them what is natural as a consequence of their identity. In other words, Keeping the law was as easy as knowing and believing in and resting in who they were. This is really, this really started messing with me, and I'm going to mess with you. I don't think keeping the law was difficult. Well, brother, I, if I had a dime for every time, I say that in my head all the time. Nobody ever says that. I just say that to myself in my having conversation. I'm just imagining, you know. Well, brother, you know it was difficult. No, no, no. 
I don't think it was difficult to keep the law. I think you just had to believe that you were who he said you were. Now that, though, as long as you're holding on to Egypt, is extremely difficult, possibly impossible. Right? See, I, I don't have to work to not take the, Lord, the name of the Lord in vain. I don't have to work to have no, any other God except Him. I don't have to work to not com- commit adultery or commit murder or to steal or to covet. I don't have to work to do any of that stuff. I have to be still and know that He is God and desire one thing my entire life, which is to live in who I am and who He says I am. So if I'm in love with God, guess what? I'm not going to go to another God. Right? If I'm in love with Jesus, guess what I'm not going to do? Take his name in vain. If I'm in love with my wife, guess what I'm not going to do? Go find another one. But do, y- do y'all see how this, how this is? It, it's, it's not this Yahweh putting this yoke of heaviness on them. It was Yahweh saying, if you'll be who I tell you you are, this yoke will be easy and this burden will be light. How do we start viewing? I, I know I keep going deeper and deeper into this. How does this change how we read the Old Testament? I, I've been dying to go deeper and deeper into the Old Testament through this lens. Okay, so uh, let me prove it. Genesis, uh, Galatians 5.14, and I promise we're going to Deuteronomy. Galatians 5.14, Jesus said, and I said it earlier, the whole law can be summed up with this, love your neighbor as yourself, okay? How do we know how to love? Because 1 John 3.16 says, we know what love is because he loved us first. So he says, literally, if you'll show your neighbor what I've shown you, you'll fulfill the entire law. In fact, Deuteronomy 10, verse 12, 16, I'm not going to read it. He tells the Israelites, Old Testament, that the reason they're in the position they're in to inherit the promised land is not because of what they've done or because they were a big, powerful nation. It's because, he literally tells them, because your ancestors were the objects of my love and you are their seeds. That's the only reason. You know what I'm saying? Unbelievable stuff. Okay, so understanding the works of the law, understand that the works of the law were to be upheld by the root system of the law, which is love. So let me take a big, giant leap, and then we'll go to Deuteronomy, because I love taking leaps. Okay? Rest in who they were was how Israel were to, and you and I are to, live in covenant. I believe it's rest. I believe we've had a mindset that the way we do the Christian thing is to work, work, work. When the way that you actually do the Christian thing is to rest, rest, rest. Trust and rest, okay? I have a giant thing that says go in right here. (laughs) Sin, I just, sin, and I'm actually not going to, I don't feel it right now. Sin, let me just put this and then we'll go to Deuteronomy. Sin is a product. You ready for this? Sin is a product of not knowing or living in who you are. That's it. The Israelites found themselves in sin. Why? Because they weren't living in who they were. You'll start to find yourself in sin the further away you feel like you're getting from your relationship with Jesus. Let's say you go 10 months without ever touching your Bible, ever praying, or ever showing up to church. 
because this is where a lot of people are today. I mean, let's just be real. Let's say you go 10 months, you don't read your Bible, you don't pray, and you don't show up to church or watch church. I don't want to sound like I'm, you know, right? So what happens? All of a sudden, somebody cuts you off in traffic, for example, and where before you would have just been like, you know what, man, that's okay. That's all right. Now you're like, no, I'm hitting them. That's it. You know what I'm saying? They deserved it. Somebody backed into me the other day, and, uh, and I, got, I got mad for a moment, for a moment, and then I was like, no, nah, it's okay, and it was a cop's fault. Anyway, but, but it, that's what we do, right? Somebody messes up your order at a restaurant. Before, you would have been like, you know what? It's okay. Everybody makes mistakes. Now you're like, you better not expect a tip, right? This, so this is, this is kind of what we do because rest is how you live in who you are, and rest is how you accomplish what Jesus desires for us to accomplish, which is to fulfill the law. It's all based on rest. You'll start working the further away you move from intimacy with Jesus. I mean, this is, you just want a little litmus test. You can say, how, how solid am I in my relationship with Jesus? And I'm not talking about how much you study or how many days you study or how many hours. That's not what I'm talking about. This is a litmus test on how close you feel to Jesus just in your life. If you feel like that the way you achieve greatness is by working more, that is a number one big red flag that says there's something that hasn't been conquered. Maybe multiple things. And I'm not talking about being lazy, because I'm not lazy. I mean, anybody that knows me, we, we don't do lazy around here, but we definitely do rest. All right, so here we go. I'm going I'm to kind of tie all this together. Deuteronomy 11, that's probably the longest intro I've ever given to a sermon, and that's where Kyle heads out. So <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Um, all right, Deuteronomy 11, and I'm actually only going to read a couple of verses. So uh, here we go. Let's start at verse, uh, let's, actually, let's just start at verse 8. I'm going to read a few verses. You ready? Lord, you've had 45 minutes to get there, so hopefully you're there. Therefore, therefore, be careful to obey every command. Now, hear all this through everything I just said, okay? Be careful to obey every command I'm giving you today so that you may have strength to go in and take over the land you are about to enter. Now, let me just pause right here. If you go back, and what are the commands he gives them? It's very simple. It's the Ten Commandments. It's to go in and tear down all the places of idolic worship. He's not giving them a list of things to run and skip over. He's giving them a list of things to stay in exclusivity in. Okay? So this is what he's talking about. Verse 9. If you obey those things, you will enjoy a long life in the land the Lord swore to give your ancestors and to you their descendants, a land flowing with milk and honey. For the land you are about to enter and take over. This is where we're going to live, these next two verses. The land you're about to enter and take over is not like the land of Egypt where you came, where you planted your seed and made irrigation ditches with your foot as in a vegetable garden. Rather, the land you will soon take over is a land of hills and valleys with plenty of rain, a land that the Lord your God cares for. Think about this. He, he watches over it through each season of the year. If you carefully obey all the commands I am giving you today, and if you love the Lord your God and serve him with all your heart and soul, there it is, then he will send the rains in their proper seasons, the early rain and the late or the latter rains, depending on your translation, so you can bring in the harvest of grain, 
new wine and olive oil. He will give you lush pasture land for you for your livestock, and you yourselves will have all you want to eat. Man, I could keep going, but that's that's a good. We're going to just hang out right there for a few minutes, then we're done. Okay. I want to point out that he says this is not built like the land of Egypt. Okay? For the land you're about to enter and take over is not like the land of Egypt from which you came. This is interesting. This is interesting. Because reading this on the surface would imply that Egypt wasn't a fertile land like Canaan. So just hang with me right here, okay? I I know we're late into this. When he says, uh, the land you're about to enter and take over is not like the land of Egypt where you came, immediately, if you don't go any deeper, your mind would go to, Canaan is a lush, fruitful land, therefore Egypt must not have been. Right? Okay. So it's really interesting. However, according to the claims of Dothan and Abraham... In number 16, 12 through 14, you can go back and read this. They come to Moses and they say, and I quote, Egypt was a fertile land flowing with milk and honey. So this is really interesting. So if Egypt is unlike Canaan, the land flowing with milk and honey, and yet we know by the account of Dothan and Abraham in number 16 that Egypt was a land flowing with milk and honey. What is he trying to tell us? They're both lands flowing with milk and honey. What is Moses saying? The key is in the piece of verse 10, which points out two things, that Egypt was where they had planted seed and made irrigation Ditches, okay? Irrigation is the laborious process of getting a controlled amount of water to plants as needed. You with me? Irrigation is a laborious process of getting a controlled amount of water to plants as needed. Contrast this with how the land of Canaan, the promised land, was watered. How was it watered? The Lord sending rain as needed in its season, and the Lord caring for the land. Here's, where the, here's what Moses is saying. Here's what Moses is saying. The Lord took you from a land where in your slavery, what you harvested was contingent on your work. But now he's bringing you into a land where what you harvest will be contingent on living in and resting in the identity of who you are. No longer slaves, but sons and daughters. Man, I would have thought that would have been a lot better, but that's okay. Think, think about this. Think about the revelations the Lord has been giving us the past little bit. It was hope, okay, holiness, love, and then now who we are. Y'all remember this? If you're new, that's okay. Okay, think about this. In Egypt, in Egypt, the Israelites first got hope when they, when they were called to come out of Egypt originally. Moses goes back, calls them out. They get hope. Then they get holiness, by the plagues avoiding them because they were set apart. Every time, every one of the plagues would strike Egypt, but the place where the Israelites were camped or lived, the plagues avoided. So it was marking them as a people set apart, not like the Egyptians. Okay? So first they get hope, 
Then they get holiness to be set apart. And then they get love, which is the covenant, all the commandments. God joins a covenant with them, love. And then finally, they get who they were when Joshua leads them in to inherit Abraham's promise. I'm going to just take an Eastern approach and leave all this kind of hidden and let some of y'all just dive in later. This week, Monday, was it Monday? I think it was Monday. Was it Monday I came in and smelled the Monday? Monday, I come in. You never know with this building uh, what, what's going to happen. You, you never know. Uh, I, one day, you might walk in, and there might be people just hanging out on the couches and all that stuff. And so, and yeah, y'all think I'm joking. That's legit. And um, I think everybody in the city of Columbia has a five to this building. But um, Ellen, Ellen is shaking his head. Anyway, I come in Monday morning. And I walk in the doors, and I smell, some of y'all were here Tuesday night, I shared this, I smelled this fire smell, like something was scorching on fire. And so I freak out, because I'm like, somebody has set the building on fire. It made sense to me. And so I'm like, I start running through the building, totally by myself at this point, Ellington's not here yet. I start running through the building, going in all the rooms, because I mean, it like, something was legit on fire. Going through all the rooms, I don't see anything. I run around the back. I can still smell this and don't see anything. So after I go through all the building, I come and sit in here, and I do two things. Number one, I take a can of Febreze and blow this building up with Febreze. That's number one. Tim Losby, if you're watching this, forgive me for what I just said because he would uh, not like that. Um, (laughs) So that was number one. Number two, Tuesday night, as we're at group, I sit around and I start thinking. Moses... And the Israelites received the law when the Lord appears in smoke and fire on the mountain of Sinai to give them the law. Right? Are y'all with me? If you didn't know that, that's what happened. Okay? I, I really believe, I really believe what the Lord is trying to show us in this. And you, if you think this is crazy, that's, that's cool. You haven't, must not have been here very long. But I believe what the Lord is trying to show us is that he's giving us an opportunity to enter into what few people have accepted the invitation to enter into, which is ultimately covenant. But the only way that we're going to do this, the only way, is if we get convinced of who we are. Who we are. We've really got to stop doing the whole, I've got to prove things, theologically thing. We've got to stop doing that, and we've got to get in the mindset of this is who I am. I can live with mystery. I can live with not knowing why. I can live with X, Y, and Z. I just know this is who I am, and then Yahweh begins to move. I think, the re- I think people talk themselves out of faith. I really do. People try to convince, prove that what they're about to take a step of faith in is going to turn out like they think it should turn out. And if they get an inkling that it might not turn out like I thought it should turn out, they're not going to do it. That's not faith. That's called making a calculated decision, right? And I could prove to you through Scripture that taking a step of faith is actually calculating a decision based on Scripture right, I believe you can make an analysis of any step of faith that you want as long as you're analyzing it through the filter of Scripture, and it's going to make sense. Just take the verse. Seek first the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added unto you. Okay, there goes the option for me to go broke or to lose everything. When we started this church, right, 
Jordan had quit her job. Y'all heard the story. We had just had a baby, and we had just bought a house, and the Lord said, all right, now's the time. Go. And I'm like, could it not happen when she had a job? Right? Now's the time. Go. So we start the church. We risk everything, and literally, it was one of those things where it was like, either the Lord is who he says he is, or we're going to lose everything, but at least we'll find out. Right? So in that moment, and i, I got to be real cautious saying this, that wasn't a... I don't know the outcome step of faith. That's not what it was. I knew the outcome is this. I knew how it was going to play out because he said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things shall be added unto you. Right? So if you're calculating, you can do that. I don't have a problem with that. You just better do it through his lens. Okay. Could you get so convinced of who you are that you begin to live a lifestyle of rest? Could you get so convinced of who you are that you begin to live a lifestyle of rest? Practically, what does this mean? Practically. This means you're not people-pleasing. You're not worrying. You're not striving. You're not withholding. You're not doubting. You're ever-trusting. You're ever-upholding the one thing you have joy unspeakable, you never burn out, and you always see the good in everything. And that list could go on and on and on. But if you're living a lifestyle and rest, notice none of that stuff had to do with being lazy. If you look, people pleasing, that's something that the Lord had to take sledgehammer after sledgehammer after sledgehammer to in me, people pleasing. The idea that everybody's going to be okay with everything that I do. I struggle with that. At least now I don't. But I, I, in the past, have struggled with that. It's that I'll say things, or the Lord will tell me to say things, and my first filter is not, is this being obedient? My first filter is, well, how will people take that? You know what I'm saying? People pleasing. Not worrying. Jordan will say amen to this. I worry and this is something the Lord's working in me. Our tire, if it's low by five pounds of pressure, I'm like, Lord, here we go. Here, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> oh, man. We'll turn on our car and it starts going. I'm like, here we go. This is going to be $8 million, you know, all that stuff. In fact, I called fire. I got I to gotta confess to y'all. I called Firestone last week to try to get this tire checked out. And, uh, and I even had to repent after because I, I was like, hey, man, I got to get this fixed. I'm assuming I don't have whatever the coverage is that makes this free. So, um, and he was like, no, you actually don't. I was like, thanks. And, um, and so I didn't ask him how much it was going to be. I said, how astronomical is this going to be? Right? Because I wanted to let him know up front, I know you're about to tell me this is going to be like $1,000. So just so you know, just so you can ease the blow. And he was like, well. It's not going to be astronomical. It's going to be about 30 bucks. And I was like, I'm so sorry. Like, you know, immediately. You know what I'm saying? So, so that's me. But that's what I mean. To, to live at rest is to stop worrying. It's to stop striving. It's to stop withholding, like Kyle mentioned earlier. It's ever trusting, ever upholding the one thing. You having joy unspeakable and the full of glory. You never burn out. And you always see the good in everything. Harvest is this week. Autumn equinox is Tuesday. So fall actually starts this week. I've been celebrating, we've been celebrating fall for a month. But fall starts this week, right? So harvest is both literally and I believe spiritually coming from what the Lord has said. But what you harvest, 
Let me help you. What you harvest will not be based on what you did. Matt, where are you? Can you go ahead and come up here? What you harvest will not be based on what you did. It will be based on how convinced you are of who you are. Harvest. What you reap in the kingdom. I think it's interesting that Jesus, as he's talking about the kingdom, he starts talking about, some of y'all remember this story in the New Testament. He talks about a farmer that casts seed. Y'all remember this story? And there's four types of soil. Anybody remember this? That he compares the kingdom to a farmer who starts throwing out seed. And there was four different types of soil, three of which the seed ended up basically getting wasted. And then one at the very end, good soil, where the seed took and it produced many, many times over what was planted. I was thinking about this this morning and I would think about the rest thing. It's really interesting that as Jesus is using this analogy, he doesn't make us the one who is either the farmer and he doesn't make us the one who is the seed. He makes us the one that simply receives and the health of who we are when we receive what he gives us determines what comes out of us. Think, I mean, think about this. In all the language of the kingdom, every single bit of it, if you go back and study, is all rooted in us being at rest. All of it. All of it. You're like a treasure that was buried in a field. And when they came and dug it up, I discovered there was treasure, put you back in the ground, sold everything, bought the land so that I could have the treasure in it. Guess what you are? The treasure sitting in the land. Guess what he is? The one who grabbed the shovel and started digging. You didn't work. You were discovered. Right? So this, this whole idea, this is so counterculture, so counterculture that immediately it becomes something. Even as, I, even as I'm preaching today, I guarantee you there's people that, that were watching online that as soon as they started hearing, oh, he's going to talk about rest, clicked it away. I know, I know rest. I can rest. No, we can't. No, we can't. 2020, in fact, I could tell you 2020 has been identified by so many people as the year of unrest. I think that's real prophetic. I think there's a lot of news people that think they're just writing news that the Lord's actually using to show us stuff. I don't, you know, I'm not saying the Lord's using CNN. I am saying what the devil meant for bad, God's using for good. Okay? <laughs> Amen. But, right? But I just wake up to see what's going on. There's chaos. There's unrest. There's people who do not know who they are. And there's this whole mentality that in November, everything's going to come crashing down. Let me tell you what's not going to happen in November. Nothing's going to crash down. I don't care who gets elected. Nothing's going to crash down. Nothing's going to fail. Nothing's going to fall. Why? Because we're going to be a people that are at rest. And being at rest means no matter what happens around you, you are constant. You're unmoving. You're unwavering. No matter what comes against you, you're a house that is rooted in the rock so that as winds come, all the other houses are falling like houses of cards and you're standing strong. Why? Because you're building 
built on a foundation that says, if God be for me, then who can be against me? No weapon formed against me shall prosper. I'm the head, not the tail, the first, not the last, above and not beneath. That's who I am. So if I can just live as a son or daughter of God and be totally convinced that that's what I am, then it doesn't matter what comes against me. I don't have to go through a checklist of do this, do this, do this, do this, do this, do this. I simply have to be this. And as I am who I am and who he has called me and you to be, we're going to find ourselves fulfilling things that we used to have to strive to fulfill and never saw the fulfillment of. Let me, let me say it like this. We tried to make awakening, great awakening. We tried to make that an idea based on how much ministry we do. So we have stadium events and we have all these nights of revival. And I think those are great. But we try to make this an equation that if I do this plus this plus this, it will equal this. I really believe that's why we haven't seen it. Because Yahweh refuses to give us something that doesn't come by way of rest. I, listen, I wonder if a lot of churches that are doing a lot of great things could see what no eye has seen and no ear has heard if they could ever stop making this about how much I do and instead make this about how much I believe I am who he says I am. I for, listen, I for years, for years and years and years and years and years was a part of of the mindset of I can do so much ministry that the state of South Carolina will be saved. And the state of South Carolina statistically is more lost today than it was then. And the reason it's more lost today than it was then is because there's a lot of people who back then claimed to be saved and weren't, and now they're just being real and saying, you know what, I'm not. That's why. But I believe if we could be like we sang today, if we could search after and be the real thing, then people, instead of seeing a list of laws, are going to start hearing, baby steps, my child, to you it may be nothing, but you make daddy proud. That's what I've been, that's, that verse right there has been killing me all week, all week. Baby steps, to you it may be nothing, but you make daddy proud. Think, oh man, thinking about Veda. She does things over and over that just blow us away. I don't know how she knows what she knows. Definitely not because of us. Um, maybe because of Jordan, not because of me. But she continually blows me away. And in the scope, the grand scope of things, it's really not anything. You know what I'm saying? But to her dad, it's enough to make me and Jordan just cry. I mean, there's a lot of nights we'll sit in our bedroom and just cry together. Not because anything's wrong, just because she said a new word today or she wrote her name. She can write her name. And so every time she writes her name, it's wobbly and it's messy and some letters are bigger than the others and all that stuff. And every time, you know what we do? We have a whole stash in our door saved of all the times she wrote her name. And other people might look at that and be like, man, she hasn't really gotten it yet. But to mom and dad, it's everything. Why? Because of who she is. Because of who she is. God is not looking. I got to get rid of this chair before it drives me insane. God is not looking. He's not looking for people who have these big, awesome, amazing potential ministries. He's not looking for you to do these big, grand things. He's looking for you to take baby steps. Ultimately, he's looking for you to take baby steps within the idea that you know who you are. And I said this last week. What if we started approaching him as Papa? 
What if we started approaching him as Abba? Not mighty God, 10 billion miles in space, 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 space. You know what I mean? Right? He's not there. You can scream all you want, but if you will whisper within the name. Let me, let me just say this, and I'm going to end with this. I'm going to end with this. I tried, I tried to convince myself to not go here. didn't work. The first command, the first command, if you go back and study this, in Deuteronomy, it leads all the way up to a story of basically their history. But the first command that's given in the book of Deuteronomy is this. Deuteronomy 11. The first command that is given is this. When you enter into the land, first command in the whole book. When you enter into the land, you are to do two things. Tear down the places of worship to idols. And number two, come worship me at the place I designate for myself. Now, if you just skim through that, it's like, oh, yeah, that makes sense because there shouldn't be places of worship to other gods. But in Semitic culture, so their culture, they believed that a place of worship was where a deity's name was remembered. Okay? So remember that. Here's why that's so important. Also in their culture, a name wasn't just what people called you. So it wasn't just my name was Joshua Adam. That's my middle name, Joshua Adam. So it wasn't just your identity is Josh. That's who you are. That's your name. It was they believed that within the name of a man or a woman or a deity was their being and their power within their name. So when you had a baby, you were naming them not just simply off what you thought people should call them. You were literally giving them their identity and power by naming them. So, so, so when my, my dad's here, so when my parents named me Joshua Adam, right? In that culture, it wouldn't have just been, I want people to call him Joshua Adam. It would have been like the Lord inspiring them to know Joshua being the name for Jesus in the Hebrew same. The Lord saves, Adam means man. So my name is the Lord saves man. That's literally my name, okay? So when they named me Joshua Adam, it would have been identifying me as somebody that the Lord would save men through. That was the idea of a name in that culture, right? So Yahweh gives them two commands. He says, go into the land and destroy all places of worship to other gods. By destroying the places of worship, what were the places of worship? Where their names were remembered, right? You destroy them, what happens? Their names are forgotten. What happens when their names are forgotten? They lose their power and their being that is found in the name that is now forgotten. So that's why they give him this command. But then he gives them the command. But I'm going to pick a place for you to come worship me. And there you're going to remember my name, which within my name is my being and my power. So that's why Jesus says stuff like this. If any of you ask anything in my name, it shall be given to you. He wasn't saying, here's a magic phrase, in the name of Jesus. That's not what he was saying. So we do that all the time. In Jesus' name, I pray. That's not, that's not what this is. This is, you are in a place where you can request things on behalf of the being and power of which name you are using. So for us, we are one with Jesus. Therefore, as we begin to release things out of our mouth, we're releasing things not under our name, but in the name or in the being and power of Jesus. 
So this is why church is so imperative, because this is the place of worship. For who? Yahweh. So Yahweh's name is remembered at the place of worship. And as long as his name is remembered, what's also a part of the culture? His being and his power. What has happened in 2020? Places of worship being shut off. What has also happened in 2020? People forgetting the name. Right? Well, brother, I don't have to do church. Yes, you do. But that's part of the rest. This is what I'm talking about, is that the more we know who he is, the more we know who we are. And the more we know who we are, the more we understand none of this is because of what we've done. America isn't America because of what we have built. America is America because Yahweh placed his hand of provision and prosperity over us and has allowed us to experience what we've experienced. Make no mistake about this. This wasn't George Washington's doing. This wasn't the Declaration of Independence's doing. This was Yahweh saying, I'm going to mark that people as set apart. That's it. Right? We need to be real cautious, though, When we start getting to the place, like he told them, if you go on in the same passage I just read, he said, but if you get into the land that I cultivate and you start saying you did this on your own, I'll take all of it away from you. Faster than you got there, I'll take it from you. And I'm telling, if we we get to the place where we think we can do this or that we built this or that we're doing this or that we're upholding this, we're going to set ourselves up for Yahweh to show us what it means for us to build something. And I promise you, what we can build pales in comparison to what He wants to build. But we've got to have that philosophical mindset before it takes us that far. We've got to get out of the place that I've got to know this and this and this and this and this or I'm not moving. Because what's going to happen is, is that we're going to stop living in faith, which comes by you accepting the fact that you don't know. You're going to stop living in faith, and we're going to start tasting what our hands can produce. And when that happens, what we're also going to do, which we're seeing now, is we're going to turn to God and say, God, why have you done this? Didn't do it. God hasn't done anything. We have. We have. Do you understand this? I don't think the church is getting smaller. I think the church is getting authentic. I felt, I mean, I don't think the church in America, I don't care what statistics do not budge me. One third of the church is leaving. No, but two thirds are getting authentic. But this is, this is important. This is important. It's important for you to be here or watch if you're watching from far away. But this is, this is important. This is why I teach for an hour. I know y'all don't like that. I know. For the most part, I would love it. I could sit and listen to teaching for days. But I know we don't like that. I, this isn't about you. This is about you becoming who you were designed to be. But ultimately, this is about him. I believe there's heavenly angels and beings peering into this place to see a picture of the image of God that they haven't seen yet. Prove it. How many angels have had to be saved through grace? None. Okay, none, none. Right? So there is a piece of us 
that they do not know about God. That they peer, this is all in the New Testament, that they peer into our lives to see who are they that He has made them the object of His love. Who are they? Who are they that He chooses to love them even though they turn away and they fall and they sin and they turn to other idols? Who are they that time and time and time again, He says, come on back home. Prodigal son can go and waste all the inheritance, and yet when he comes back, Papa is sitting on the porch waiting. That tells me two things. It tells me, number one, he still loved him. Number two, he was expecting him to come back. I, I want to I end today. I want to end on this. I know this was a message of rest, but y'all know me. Ultimately, it comes back to one thing, one thing. But I want to end like this, and I'm in earlier than I normally do, so happy birthday. Um, happy fall. Okay? I think there's two things we need to do. And I'm going to pray, but as I'm praying, I think there's two groups of people. There's one group that is the majority, maybe all, who do not know what it means to live in rest. How many of us remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy? Is there one day a week that all you do is rest and have fun? Is there? Some of you are like, yeah, that's like five days a week for me. But, you know, (laughs) but I mean seriously is there one day a week that you just simply rest and have fun because if not it's because in order to rest for that day you've got to trust that while you're not working Yahweh is providing that's what the Sabbath so is that a part of your life if not it needs to be it needs to be remember the Sabbath day but on top of that are you living a life in rest knowing that he is doing all the work behind the scenes and you're living as a son, not as a father, as a son, right? How many of us live in that rest? I'll be the first to admit, I don't. I don't. So what Yahweh is trying to get us to go into is a season, ultimately a lifetime, but a season where we learn who we are and as we learn who we are, we're going to be the most rested group of people on planet Earth. And here's what we're going to see. As we get rested, we're going to see the fruitfulness of all the ministry that we're not going to do by work. Let me say this one more time, just, just prophetically. As we rest, we're going to see the fruit of ministry that we would have normally strived to see and never would have saw it. I think the Lord's going to bring so many people into this place, not because, and I shared this with Miss Noel Tuesday night, not because we're doing anything extravagant. I believe he's going to start sending sons and daughters home because we're so at rest that when they walk in, they see a group of people completely set apart, yet living life to the full. People aren't going to come in here because we have bounce houses or good coffee or free t-shirts. They're going to come in here because Yahweh is so present that things are shifting, that ages are changing, that people are being healed that were never healed before. That's that's what we're going to see. So I want to pray for that. And then number two, I want to pray if, if you are maybe in this room and maybe you don't have a relationship with Jesus or maybe you've been running for him from him or maybe you've just been far away from him for a really long time and you don't know what it means to have a relationship with him. I, I just, I'm going to ask you, we're going to pray. In fact, y'all go ahead and pray with me. And y'all know how much I don't uh, do the repeated prayer thing, so I'm not going to do that. But I do, I want to be able to pray with you. 
is 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 there anybody in the room maybe that you haven't been saved or you feel like you you just run far from God that uh, you need to come home? If if that's you, could you just raise your hand up? I'm not going to ask you to repeat a prayer after me or anything like that. I would just love to pray over you. So is that anybody in the room and you just be transparent and real that you've been running and running and running and running and running? Awesome. Y'all can put your hands down. Y'all can put your hands down. I'm going to pray. And if you raised your hand, this is your moment to just say, Papa, I'm coming home. I'm coming home. And for everybody else, this is our moment to say, we commit to the life of rest, just knowing that we are sons and daughters of God. So Yahweh, I pray right now that you would just begin to stir something in us that would seat us in rest. I pray for those who raise their hands. I pray that you would seal their identity today, that this would not be the greatest day of their lives. It would be the beginning of every single day being the greatest days of their lives as they're living in intimacy and covenant with you. But Lord, for the rest of us, and even for them, I pray that you would seat us in such a level of rest and such a measure of rest that people would look at us and say, I don't know how you're seeing what you're seeing when you haven't done the work to earn what you're seeing. I pray that people would start to look at us as a church. I pray that people would start to look at what you're doing through us and say, how on earth is that happening when they're not striving to do anything? I pray that that would mark us so that we could do two things glorify you as the only one who is allowing us to see what we see. And number two, be so at rest that we don't even know what burnout is. Be so at rest that when you begin to call us to things and move us into things, our Sabbaths have actually become moments in our story that we can look at and say, he's been faithful, he's been faithful, he's been faithful. I rested and I still produced fruit. I rested and I still produced harvest. I rested and I still produced what no eye has seen and no ear has heard. That is the way of the kingdom. It's peace that passes all understanding. It's Sabbath, it's Shabbat. It's the idea that you brought us out of Egypt, not because of what we did, not because we were a great strong nation, but because you looked at us and said, their blood is Abraham's. And I remember what I said to him. I'll make your descendants like the stars in the sky and the sands on the sea. Through you, the entire world will be blessed. Your name will be great. I will make you famous. That's what you promised Abraham. So why did you bring the Israelites out and why did you send Jesus to the cross for us? Because of who we are. So Lord, we thank you for that. We thank you that this is all for your glory and all for your honor in your name. Amen.